0: So our panelists, starting on my far right, your left, is Chip Delaney. He's a strategy and business development professional with NextLP. Uh, He possesses strong experience building and developing uh, AI strategies and growing relationships with Fortune 100 and global 500 corporations, management consulting, and law firms. His industry experience includes artificial intelligence, renewable energy, uh, emerging technologies financial services and pharma so chip welcome chip everybody chip Delaney
1: thank you very much
0: uh, chip if you don't mind could you tell us uh, you know a little bit about uh, yourself personally and also give us some description about what AI is and machine learning is since we're going to be talking about that
1: certainly okay. so uh, my role in XLP is developing strategies and Identifying for different corporations and law firms how they can best use our artificial intelligence and So we work in both the reactive AI space So that is taking information learning from it and then using it to investigate a particular matter and then of course in the proactive space Which means we want to be able to find these things before they become downstream legal issues uh, as far as for sort of definition of artificial intelligence goes uh, the definition that we give as an organization is to us Uh, real AI as opposed to the marketing buzzword which is quite often thrown around today for us it does two key things it's a bit of a litmus test so number one true AI should be able to adapt to your data but it also should understand context and so this could be natural language processing but we could also be talking about uh, a visual AI understand the context of surroundings being able to identify vectors sense different things so context is critical for AI to deliver something that's really valuable to us as far as personal definition of artificial intelligence, I think about, you know, trying to take away the things that we rely on to do as human beings, so predict things, understand things, and being able to teach machines to do that for us. So that's much more widespread, much more all encompassing but I tend to think of artificial intelligence along those lines. Excellent. Thank you. And if something personal about yourself, Chip? Ah, uh, something personal about myself? Like a fun
0: fact? Is that what you... <laughs> well, I think you, uh, you're a... Uh, you, uh, Aussie person. Uh, right? uh, yeah, I'm from
1: Australia. Uh, g'day. I thought you were German. I thought <laughs> you were good. German. Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Our next, our next guest, or our next uh, contestant. I feel like the guy in the dating show. You remember the old dating <laughs> game back in the '60s? Uh, is uh, is John, and that's uh, John Evans. And John Evans is, is a. Um, he's a director of social, uh, solutions architecture. At Impact Networking, which is also uh, our sponsor, as you heard from uh, their CEO, Eddie Brock, uh, Brock, earlier. He's a solution architect, project manager, and former developer with over 15 years' experience bringing projects to life. Uh, He specializes in robotic process automation, or RPA, and he's also the only non lawyer on our panel. So, John, uh, please welcome John Evans.
2: Thank you. Thanks.
0: And John, if you could just uh, share with us a little bit of something personal in your nature and also uh, tell us a bit about what RPA is. Sure.
2: Yeah. I think we'll take the RPA part first, and then I have Uh, like 15 minutes where I'll talk about myself. (laughs) We'll go from there. So RPA is uh, Robotic Process Automation, and it typically employs... It's a business process optimization strategy that employs uh, software robots to optimize or sometimes completely automate uh, rote repetitive, uh, time consuming tasks, a lot of things about aggregating data, data entry,
0: eliminating uh, human beings.
2: <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, that's my goal. So. No, I, <laughs> there's some debate about that. but the yeah, trying to take the uh, individual sections of what would encompass an entire job and uh, hand off where it's possible to technology to do those tasks.
0: Excellent. And the personal side?
2: Uh, yeah, I was going to say the last time I was in front of this many lawyers, I had to move to Chicago and change my name. <laughs> so.
0: Okay, and last but not least, we have uh, Scott Milner. Uh, Scott is, um, let me get back to his bio here. What did I do with his bio? It's really long. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, Scott's bio is very long.
1: What I do with Scott's bio?
3: Scott, introduce yourself. Please. A.k.a. technology filled. Um So I'm a partner at Morgan Lewis in our Philadelphia office, and I'm one of the original attorneys that founded our e-discovery oh, practice. Sorry,
0: I found, I found your I, notes. Please, you. <laughs> let me go for it. Scott is a partner at Morgan Lewis Macias. <laughs> His practice focuses on developing tailored strategies and discovery management plans for clients and firm attorneys, with an emphasis on electronic discovery. These responsibilities have included conducting and advising on all phases of discovery, including the preservation, collection, review, and production of large volumes of e-discovery. Scott is a frequent speaker at CLEs, seminars, and webcasts addressing e-discovery issues, including case law updates, practice pointers for key phases of all electronic discovery reference models, and trends in e-discovery. So please welcome Scott Milner. <laughs> How was
3: that? <laughs> Brilliant. Right, Couldn't Scott, read it better so myself.
0: You want to share us a little bit
3: about yourself personally and also why you're here today? Uh, so personally, um, uh, I, I went to law school to defer adulthood, um, if we're honest. Um, <laughs> and so uh, part of the, the fun I've had in our, and in, in really at the law firm environment, um, is been able to just try to look at, if I was going to disrupt Law 10, how do I do it? And the firm has given me a platform to uh, look at alternative ways to deliver legal services. And going back to when I was 12 years old and we founded the eDiscovery group 15 years ago. Um, uh, yes, I'm younger than you, Chip. Um, uh, you know, it was, the idea was, how do we beat clients and show value to clients before somebody else does? And so, why I'm here is I love the agenda and love the fact that we're all thinking about delivering legal services differently, and I've been really excited just to hear the different point of views from all the different panelists, so that's why I'm here. Um, Fun fact about myself, I just moved back from a 20-month stint in Paris, Uh, I didn't speak any French, still don't speak any French, still don't like the French, uh, but I'm really good at champagne. Uh, and uh, Champagne. I, uh, some and I'm, I'm really good at doing when, uh, <laughs> when I can't get any service at the restaurants in France. So uh, it's good times. I'm really happy to be here and uh, thankful for the opportunity.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Scott.
3: Uh,
0: well, a little bit about me. Who am I? My name's Carl Adams. I'm a executive, uh, sorry, global director of legal AI at Exigent. I'm also a transactional attorney like a few of the gentlemen here and some of you in the room. And I've been so since uh, 1997. But for the last four years, uh, my focus has been on assisting clients to harness their contract portfolio data and proactively manage task contract management performance, and life potential, op- and, and life potential opportunities hidden within their, their data. Initially, the emphasis was on rolling out Exigent's uh, contract management solution, what we call Chameleon. Uh, But of late my attention is primarily on developing and a proprietary AI capability uh, to automate the process of data scraping from contracts for contract management and discovery purposes. To increase my capacity of understanding the technical side of what I do uh, recently completed a grueling and I do mean grueling six month uh, data analytics and visualization certification program through the University of Minnesota. Um, I'm also, like Eric, a certified ISO 27001 lead implementer. Uh, On the personal side, I'm a part-time professional musician and once performed alongside Morgan Freeman in 1983 and 84 and uh, relocated back to the U.S. after spending 15 years in Cape Town, South Africa, where I actually met up with the Exogen people and started my relationship with the company. So that's a bit about me. Uh, my area of expertise, besides AI, is a bit, a bit about um, blockchain. What is blockchain? What is that? Um, well, to put it in a nutshell, it's a very sophisticated ledger system. It's a way of capturing a series of transactions that are shared across a broad and diverse group and that don't necessarily know each other. Okay, So imagine you sharing all your information with people you don't know. And what that means is that no one person actually has any control over that data. It's nearly impossible for participants to change the data or even add a transaction without the approval of all the other parties in that network or that system. So that means that the data on blockchain is really secure, supposedly, and almost infalsifiable. And it brings, because of that nature of the data on the blockchain, it brings about a lot of trust among the participants. Blockchain is great for transactions where there's usually an intermediary, aka lawyers, bankers, <laughs> some of us in the room. Whether um, there's an intermediary, for example, if you're sending money abroad or you're shipping goods and services to other places, you might be using lawyers or bankers or escrow agents and accountants. Uh, but the blockchain eliminates the need for that. So the blockchain essentially takes the trust out of the issue uh, or, or the out-of-the-equation, so to speak, and thus eliminates the need for an intermediary. intermediary. I'm using some big, long words today, huh? <laughs> so what are, the, what are some good examples of blockchain? Practical uses would be like supply chain, tracking your goods and services wherever they are in the, in the particular network, um, showing being able to show your customers exactly where their products are, and also... Uh, Uh, storage of digital identity and creative works like art, music, photos, and even uh, employment eligibility, background checks, things of that sort. All right, so that's a bit about blockchain. And now we're going to get into the nitty-gritty here. Um, So we broke this down into a couple of themes. The... uh, The first theme is, is really about change, OK? And, sorry, I'm just finding my place in my notes.
3: Can I ask a couple yeah, so questions, see, Scott? Yeah, yeah, go ahead, Scott. So I want to ask a couple questions in here. I, I, I've heard a lot of people at different organizations, whether it be law firm, corporate, Service provider, and we'll ask absentee people not to vote just because I, I think David may still be here. Um, <laughs> how many people in your organization still have the people that are the uh, director of No? How about the uh, VP of the Status Quo? So I see some heads shaking. Uh, what, what, one of the first things we're getting at is kind of the drivers of change. Who yeah. is driving change behind the organization? So that's exactly right. So that is our
0: first theme. Thank you. Thank you very much, Scott. So what are the drivers of change? What are some of the examples of, well, let's, uh, let's talk to Chip here for a moment. What would you say are some of the examples, Chip, of uh, AI machine learning initiatives and undertaken by your company and or your,
1: your clients, for that matter? Yeah, so really good question. <clears throat> oh, yeah. We've been talking a lot today about data, you know, and data is this reservoir of knowledge that we can feed from. So what we're trying to do is mainly look at data and say, well, okay, we can learn from this and turn this information into AI models. So just a quick show of hands so I know whether it's worth outlining what an AI model is. Does everyone here have an understanding of what an artificial intelligence model is? It's okay if you don't. Just briefly to go over it. An AI model is an algorithm, right? So we train data to understand the features of what we're looking for. From that, we get a model the model has captured all the features that are relevant to something that's interesting to us. Here's a good example. If I have a fraud investigation, right, and I run through a machine learning process, I run all the data within that fraud investigation through a platform, I train up a model in that platform to understand the relative concepts that are important, the emotional signals, the linguistic intelligence of it, the behavioural signals that might be interesting to me. Once that's saved, if I have a new fraud investigation come along then I can take that model that I've already created it, deploy it on that new data, and instantly be brought to all the similar patterns that exist. So we're talking really about creating efficiencies here and looking through that data by capturing intelligence that we've already gleaned from previous matters. What we're trying to do is to be able to create a process of continuous improvement, continuous efficiency, in taking all of the data that we've had, so law firms have just been reservoirs of data for years, turning that into AI models and then running a process of efficiency going forward. But I take that one step further. I say, well, where do the problems arise? So I think about a corporation. Inside their communications, there are risks happening all the time. Well, if we can identify all the risks that they want to find, rank them accordingly, it might be a regulatory matter, it might be a HR and ethics matter, a compliance issue, take past data that we have or information from their subject matter experts, turn that into an AI model, run data through it, enrich the model, and then have that model sit on top of their communications, their active data communications, then we can proactively identify risks when they happen. And this is the kind of change that we're trying to engender here. Taking something which is traditionally a very laborious task, taking the data that we've gained, and leveraging these technologies which feed off data to give us a much more efficient and much more better process going forward. So
0: those would be examples of the, the unicorns, in the AI sp- spectrum. Yeah, you
1: could call them unicorns. Can, can you yeah. think of some examples of donkeys in the AI world? So I think it comes down to the nature of artificial intelligence and what kind of AI you're using. Because AI is a bit of a catch-all term to a lot of people, but you know, if we think about one particular subfield of AI, natural language processing, well, underneath that, there's a variety of different ways that you can understand natural language and then go through the machine learning process of training a model. For example... One that we use commonly at NextLP is called Named Entity Recognition. And this process isn't overly complicated. It looks through the data, tokenizes all the words within communications based on categories that it's been trained on, entities it understands, and then uses that to be able to classify and let the user explore the data with great ease. But there are other versions of natural language processing that you can use. Different versions are going to do different things. It's important to not be a donkey by using the wrong algorithm for the wrong application.
0: I guess another example of that is maybe using the wrong data to begin with, or data that hasn't been properly managed or scrubbed or cleaned in some kind of way. Scott, do you want to comment on that? I was that? just
3: going to say, or the the old way of human review, right? Exactly. Um, I, I think there's still a lot of people that think that throwing bodies at solutions is the only solution. And I think, um, thankfully, um, we've started to hit the, the the mark where people realize that. Just labor costs is not the only factor, and it needs to be enhanced by technology. And, and I think I, I like, because we're going to be provocative a bit on the stage, I think the challenge Chip a little bit on this issue is he says it's indicative of X. And I, I think he didn't mean it in that way, but I'm going to push it as, I like to call it as a marker of what I need to look at. So I'm a lawyer trying to get my in-house lawyers at the law firm to leverage technology to enhance their deliverable legal services. And if I tell them they're no longer needed, what happens? They go back to throwing 45 bodies at the solution. And what? so I'm trying to say is that what technology like CHIPS offers us is it offers us markers for identifying what records should we look at first. Does it mean just because you're reviewing a bunch of emails that were sent at night to the alleged suspect or whatever it may be is a problem? No. But it's better than running search terms and throwing 400 people at it to try to look at that. Because they're not going to catch the trends. They're not going to understand the impact of emojis. And so I like to say it's more of an augmented intelligence than artificial intelligence. And it's here to drive markers of change rather than coming to a conclusion per se.
1: Yeah, no, I think, I think you're right there. You know, we look at it as the best possible start to a matter. How can I give my people, I've employed these people, I'm trying to employ very smart people. Well, it makes no sense for them to be going through and manually looking at these documents, right? That is the old age. I want to enable these people as much as possible. And I can also then free up their time for more strategically based activities. If I have them going through with very predictive routine tasks, am I making the best use of my labour force? Probably not if I can free them up, if I can enable them with technology, then I can approach more clients, I can cover more ground, and I can provide a more profitable service for my business at the same time by not throwing the bodies at it. Would and also that oh, the, ahead, the
2: example of throwing the right bodies at it too, that yeah. the right minds to make sure that they're marking those things in the way that they should. And I think as far as donkey technology goes in the kind of AI <laughs> natural language processing <laughs> space, There's a couple of of, uh, just terrible examples in which uh, natural language processing and and machine learning were used with seeds. The the seed, the way that people were actually making the the determination of what was right or wrong, basically how they were instructing or teaching the models, were open to the public. And uh, a a lot of this was through chatbot technology. So there's uh, conversations you're having with a robot. The robot, the AI, is learning through machine learning. And uh, they just swore at each other after like the first couple of days. Like, <laughs> basically, the public taught the machine to be an awful person. So the quality Sorry. of the, <laughs> the quality of the people who are, are vetting that data and making those checks for you, like what they understand about the process, what they understand about the data, is also is also crucial. Which kind of plays into the, the idea of what happens to people in this in these overall processes. Like yeah. as you automate something.
0: Yeah, that's that's a very good point. I think also uh, another consideration is something that might start to look out like like a unicorn turns into a donkey because at times we haven't really fully mapped out what the particular process is you're trying to automate. Oftentimes and you're running into a bottleneck, you may have automated one part of it, but you didn't automate the full process and you run into a bottleneck that's further downstream in that process. Maybe you can comment a bit further right, on that, Yeah, journey. and
2: that's it, it, also what will happen, it, not even just automating the wrong part of a process. If you have a bad process, if you don't normalize the process, improve the process before you look at efficiencies or automations, you're just going to magnify the the, the the bottlenecks that exist in there. You're just going to magnify the, the wrong people or the wrong time, right? Like most of these... Uh, automation or efficiency processes are designed to put the right data in front of the right people at the right time, right? Mm-hmm. And if I can't do that because I don't have the right people or the right time doesn't exist, then I'm just going to continue to magnify the process that's already inefficient and terrible. So, what?
0: or if, it, if Or if it's meant for something that is a client solution, like, for example, contract management, right. and you've got this beautiful AI tool that will extract all this information from the contracts, but it's not in a form that you can really present to clients, you've created another bottleneck because now you've got to take and convert that information into something that's useful, which is actually what we're trying to address with, uh, with Scarlet AI at, uh, at Exigent. Hopefully it's not going to be a, a donkey. <laughs> I'm trying it's to make gonna, sure it's, it's not. It's going to start swearing at you constantly. <laughs> Great. Okay, so robotic process automation. Give us a little bit of uh, some real world examples of what that sure. is. Sure.
2: Yeah, I can talk through a few uh, use cases. There, there are some that are common. In in the work that we do at Impact, we we engage uh, we engage all different types of businesses. We look at all different types of processes and try to figure out where that rote, repetitive work is. Right, where those those tasks that we can pull out and automate, where those exist. So. Uh, uh, In a lot of space where people are doing uh, order processing, where they're getting in information, they're fulfilling orders, they often have to have uh, uh, laborious communications back and forth with either web portals to basically say like, oh, I have this order, I'm going to ship it on November 14th or, you know, so on and so forth. Um, So some real world world examples are any point in which people are doing that data entry out into portals where they're making responses to something that is essentially just accruing data. Any of those uh, kind of rote repetitive tasks, I get an email that comes in, my job is to look at that email, go to a web portal and tell them that I acknowledge this email arrived, uh, pull down data from that portal, organize it into some other format and then move that somewhere for a different report. Um, think about these these examples as the, the, we talk about it as swivel chair, right? Where you You're sitting there looking at one screen, you're aggregating data from it, and then you're moving to another place and you're doing something with that Mm. data. The act of moving that data from one place to another doesn't necessarily require a person. It doesn't play on the person's uh, strong points. The the human parts of that process are pretty meager. There's typing data in here, typing data in the other place. On on the law firm side though, Scott,
0: got some questions over there. Scott's gonna. Oh (laughs) wait, go ahead. I'm playing Vanna White. They keep saying (laughs) Bill Clinton, but I'm Vanna White today. So whenever you're ready, let me know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sorry. We'll get we'll get to your questions. Continue. Oh yeah, uh,
2: one that there's a there's an interesting um, legal use case on the RPA side for e-filing. We have a couple of these out in the wild right now where. The, the case management system will have all of the data and all the documents accrued in it and then there's a, a person who has to then take the data and those documents and post them out to uh, e-file websites, take those uh, envelope numbers back in and case numbers and uh, update things and then keep track of the correspondence through the portals. And we've had success in taking, uh, taking people out of that part of the process and just communicating that data back to them. So we take the organized data out of the case management system, we upload it into the portal, bring the responses back, and then uh, either generate email notifications of success along the way.
0: Oh, that's excellent. Do you think there could be some application of that, say, in doing Blue Sky compliance filings?
2: If I knew what Blue Sky compl- uh, yeah, compliance filings were? Yeah, I mean, that's basically, I- uh,
0: <laughs> you know, a lot of paralegals sort of handle this functions in law firms and, and legal departments as well have been doing That's where you... Wherever you're doing business in all 50 states, you've got fi- filings, especially if you're doing oh, offerings of securities and things of that sort. Yeah. You've got to file all those paperwork. But it seems to me that that could be ripe oh, for an area yeah, like definitely. RPA. I,
2: I have use cases out there right now, too, that are uh, strictly about keeping things in compliance, making sure that I'm filing ta- particularly tax information. Mm-hmm. Like I need to go to a website and tell a, a municipality or a county that, I'm doing business for this and this reason and getting back information. So
0: instead of the alert going to a flesh and blood human being, it's going to some autobot right. that's going to complete that process. Yeah, it
2: comes back in via email. The robot watches the email, waits for a particular subject or uh, information in the email, and then that triggers the robot. And that's kind of uh, often how we go through these processes as we look at, like, well, what's the trigger event that causes a person to do a thing? What's the workflow that they execute and what's the required output? Typically, you find the trigger is something you know like an email or a portal update or mm. something that runs on schedule. The workflow could be any number of complicated steps that involve people or don't. And then the last thing is generally a report or a, a notification that says, like, hey, we're good, or this is bad. Human being, do That's a thing.
0: Let me, uh, let me walk the mic over here. And uh, John, that was really great. I, I really like these uh, practical applications. So I think we had a couple of questions on this side. Oh, you wanted me oh, to talk to about there. the e-file. This oh. is actually his team over here. <laughs> Thank you. All right, CEO so, is not Scott. derelict in my duties. <laughs> Scott, could you talk a bit about um, uh, the e- e-data initiative at uh, at your law firm and how you guys are using artificial intelligence and e-discovery? Can you talk to that?
3: Sure. Um, I, I think. Let me take a step back. I mean, drivers of change, right? This is the the, 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 the really theme one from my perspective. And, and, and to me, what I tried to alert other partners and practitioners at the law firm was, if a client is asking us to make a change, we're too late. Because that means somebody's already there. Whether that be an alternative legal service provider, whether that be an LPO, whether that be something. So how do I get ahead of that? So even back to 2002 when I started... Um, e-discovery at the firm, people were willing to pay traditional litigation associates to do doc review. We were flying them all over the country to go look into warehouses. We did a lot of asbestos litigation. And literally, I had to get OSHA trained to go in in an awesome red suit, or orange suit, sorry, orange suit, into these warehouses to, (laughs) to have like 1960s onion skin paper to do doc review. And they were paying my rate of like $300 an hour to do that. And we're like, why? <laughs> why? Why pay the travel expense? Why pay the costs? So from a driver's to change, we said, how do we buck the system before somebody else does? And my philosophy has always been, if, if a client is asking me to change, I am too late. And so that's why we founded our e-discovery practice. We said, hey, we can staff these models and practices differently and over the last 15 years, we've implemented technology. And I just did a report for our advisory board where we studied our FTE went down by 50 people and we handled more than one terabyte of data. Why is that? Technology supported our process. Mm-hmm. So going back to my process our theme of augmentation versus artificial, there's now platforms out there that support driving better efficiency. I'm able to do more with less and I'm able to pass those savings on to the client before somebody else does. And so from the e-discovery practice, um, it was a no-brainer because we saw the trend where things were going to unbundle. Eventually, the law firms were not going to handle that work anymore. So how did we get ahead of it? We built the practice, we looked at process, and then we looked at technology to enhance the deliverable, not solve our problem. And that's my big kind of push is that technology is not... Going to solve a problem. you got to understand what your problem is first right. and then figure out how technology can support the solution. Excellent. Hold on. I'm coming. Yeah. <laughs> <Banda White's here. laughs> no, I just wanted to comment and kind of tie this back to um, something Charles said earlier with TD Bank, and I could guess the same thing here is that that while you're using, you know, maybe less people, the type of work they're doing is way cooler and more engaging, just like the argument he made for, um, you know, the work that the lawyers were doing. Uh, By analyzing where your time is spent, you're, you know, not doing things that are not interesting. You're way more engaged in stuff that's cool. So, you know, you've got to have better engagement and all of that too. It's funny you say that. So we um, coined this idea of... uh, for those sports fans out there, when you come out of high school, you get classified in a a role, right? Quarterback, number three quarterback, number six running back. They also have a classification called athlete. And I'm very interested to think about lawyers are going to be athletes, right? They're going to be, with the enhancement of technology to support our groups, we're going to be generalists because AI will augment our knowledge and be able to support us. Number four athlete out of Florida, Scott Milner. Oh, sorry. <laughs>
1: Herman Schrader.
0: Uh, so, what do you do about building the AI uh, to satisfy, most importantly, the the court, but also your count, you know, the party that you're litigating against, and 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 then of course your client has to be convinced. That, you know on the front end, what kind of quality control? What you know, how do you build it and convince folks that? You're finding the right
1: documents.
3: Uh, well, it's a, it's a little bit of a trust but not uh, trust but verify approach, right? So um, this is why I strongly believe in the theme of augmented intelligence. Um, so from our philosophies, we test the negative. So whatever is being left behind, we do statistical sampling of that data in order to say, do we know what is not going to be analyzed or reviewed by humans because. That is really the truth of of how we validate the work process that's there. And we don't have to look very hard in in secondary authority. I mean, there was a study called the TREC study, free discovery that happened years ago, where they validated um, human versus the technology-assisted review approach. And the analytics inevitably performed better than humans time and time and time again. Was it perfect? No. If anybody ever answered a discovery request as I produced all documents, you're a liar. It's not true. (laughs) You didn't produce all documents that are responsive to the issue, but you were reasonable and proportional. So my philosophy has always been is that can we measure the results? And we can do it a lot better, I think, using technology and the technology available today than we can with just traditional human review. And I'm sure you can actually talk about the testing and building out the model itself Using SMEs, using continued process improvement, continued learning, active learning.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's never a very, it's never a um, you know an assumption-based process. There's always a, a clear roadmap that needs to be defined. Whether we're talking about the reactive use of AI models or proactively using them to be identifying risk within an organization. So there's heavy engagement with subject matter experts to ensure that the process of training a model is accurate, that the control sets are accurate, that we're coding the right documents, that we're measuring the different reporting metrics we have, the precision recall F1 scores on these things, and then always going through and doing a a bit of a sanity check, Uh, are we reviewing the right documents, especially when we're talking about very complicated models, sometimes clients demand, you know, quite a complex uh, analysis of a particular data set or a particular issue that needs to be sought, and that requires Maybe a little bit more heavy lifting early on from our data scientists, but that effort is worth it, because once you have that result, once you have that model, well, then you've got that solution taken care of, and then you've got a process that can improve and learn from further matters. See, the best thing about machine learning and artificial intelligence is the ability to reuse these models and improve upon them time and time again, and that's where we can really start to build on these concepts of continuous improvement, but... Like Scott said, a lot of refinement, a lot of working out what that roadmap looks like at the start and having a really concise strategy will ultimately determine what the end result is.
2: Do you find that over time people start to trust the models more? Like, do you Absolutely, have, 100%. Uh,
1: yeah, and it's very quick. Yeah. You know, as soon as people understand that they don't have to throw the same amount of bodies at a problem, as soon as they see the model perform, and then they start to think about really common sense things, like people get tired. They stare at computer screens, they miss things, they have to go to the toilet, you know, they have to stop working after a while. The amount of data that it takes someone to get through when they're manually going through things and coding them, they may have been trained at a great law school, but they're still people, they're still humans. And so thinking about how we use technology and how we use our humans better is critical to be able to have efficiencies going forward. But it's going to mean that in the long run we can create much better strategies for how we use our data.
3: And the thing is, the courts are less sympathetic now, right? So the courts are less Absolutely. sympathetic of it's going to take X amount of hours, X amount of bodies to do this work. Um, and they're saying, why aren't you embracing technology? Uh, and I don't, want to, I don't want to bypass your comment about disclosure or discussion with the opposing party. My philosophy, and this is my personal philosophy, not the, one of my firm or my clients per se, is you didn't ask me how I was doing when I was doing paper, Why do you care what I'm doing with electronic data? (laughs) At the end of the day, if there's gaps in my production, you have the same right to challenge what I've done. And if I have to defend it, I'm happy to defend it. So as as a litigator, unless I'm going with the government where they have a lot more authority to shut me down, I am going that I'm going to respond to your discovery. I'll have enough disclosure and transparency as appropriate. But what I do to get from point A to point Z is is my approach. And I'm happy to take that to the court, and I have and it's been successful. But at the end of the day, the courts are less sophisticated, or no, sorry, less, I would say sympathetic, I should say is the better word, of me saying, I got to throw 600 people out to do this. Because they're like, why aren't you embracing technology? Why aren't you embracing email threading, near duplicate analysis, concept searching, modeling? So there's a lot of other things that can be built into the process on that front.
1: Yeah, uh, just to jump in with one more example, which feeds to this problem that we still have. You know, certainly a lot of more conservative, I don't want to say Luddites, but more conservative groups and firms. Mm-hmm. Let's think about something that's very common today and, and something that doesn't really have a lot of efficiency around it, data breach. Right? So a, a company mm-hmm. has a data breach problem um, and they have, depending on the state and the regulation, it can be 30 days to respond and let anyone who's data they have, so it's customers, vendors, whoever, that, hey, we've had this breach, this is what, expo- this is what was exposed and this is what we're doing to fix it. So, now, a cybersecurity expert, now we've got one here, would be able to give me the exacts on that, but a lot of states have regulations where there is a set time in order to react. Now, typically what happens is that the company will need to get us ducks in order. Uh, that may take up to 20 days. And if we've got a 30-day period in order to be able to notify the right people, then by the time the law firm or forensics group gets that, they've got 10 days to act. Now... Until recently, very recently, um, the best way to be able to go about identifying this data was through Regex or search term reports. It's actually just changed in the last um, month. Uh, But um, what you had here was the thing that Scott just described. Throw bodies at the problem. Because if you're talking about a keyword search to be able to identify entities in data, incredibly inefficient and very expensive for law firms. In Europe, they've got the same thing with uh, direct subject action requests, essentially the same issue. But a very short amount of time to be able to respond to it and again until now uh very inefficient the until now is that we've just developed the ability to build ai models at the entity level which means we can identify the context of a particular entity and be able to search on it to be able to dramatically improve the recall in a data breach effort
3: let's not get started with search terms and the inaccuracy of search terms with i mean with i think the biggest trends that we're seeing is the the me too movement i mean I think everybody's familiar with the Me Too movement. People aren't writing the words that you're thinking of searching in communications. And by the way, (laughs) they're also not doing it via email. In my 17 years of practice, I've had one document that actually had a kickback statue for FCPA investigations. Somebody actually had that on their hard drive. I was like, really? <laughs> Thank you for making my life easier. Um, but, I mean, the idea behind it is search terms aren't any good, and you need to think about leveraging technology to support, mm-hmm. I think, two of the things. And, and I think, again, the Me Too movement and FCPA investigations are two ripe areas for yeah. disruption on that front.
1: Absolutely. You know, it comes back to that uh, when I was defining artificial intelligence at the start, context. What is the context of what we're looking for? Training a system to be able to understand the context of a particular entity, and then from there, being able to put myself, learning that's what you're talking about at the start, Scott, in the best possible starting position for the intelligent people that I'm trying to hire. Oh, no. Uh-oh. So the uh, <laughs> CEO, David Holm, has a question. <clears throat> I mean, I, I think it's a fantastic panel, and, uh, but I want to ask you a simple question. For the audience, which is three things that you would recommend they would take away from this and change tomorrow, that won't cost them a fortune.
0: Thank you, David.
3: <laughs> it's three things you want to uh, take away uh, from today to actually change tomorrow,
0: oh. and won't cost you a fortune. And won't cost
2: a fortune. <laughs> oh, I thought you said would cost a fortune. Will I not. got to say that's.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Chip? Okay. Um, but do I give three or just one and they give two others? Well, maybe one each. Okay. Right. <laughs> um, I would say contact AI vendors, um, AI providers, um, and set up a, uh, a team within, because you're going to need to have people informed anyway, uh, Whatever, whether you're a law firm or whether you're a, a corporation, uh, a working group, to be able to learn based on some things that you want to have as strategic initiatives as much as they can, and then engage in a process to understand what the roadmap of setting that out looks like. Right? Conversations you can have over coffee. You can engage people. They're going to want to talk to you anyway because they're going to have salespeople. Make them work for it, right? Make them work for it. Ask some questions that are big and hard to understand, and they're going to have to go away and talk to their people. That's not going to cost you a lot of money early on, but you're going to gain a lot of knowledge from that, and you're going to understand how to build a roadmap, which is then when you can start applying investments. John?
2: Sure. Yeah, I would recommend, uh, there's a lot of big ideas, there's a lot of uh, complicated technology, some things that seem <laughs> daunting. I, I always recommend that you start uh, with something uh, that has an, an impact, that's digestible, that's executable, somewhere that you can get a quick, uh, a quick win, somewhere where you can succeed in process improvement, process optimization. Uh, the only way to change a culture, to change a landscape, is to to demonstrate that sort of value. The only way to actually demonstrate it is not to look at an entire process and say like, oh, this is really inefficient, I'm gonna rip this whole thing out, I'm gonna replace it with this super uh, efficient process that relies on RPA and AI technologies and uh, and do all of this deep learning. But uh, in addition, uh, uh, the, the thing you do is the little thing. <laughs> Find yourself the small process that basically says, I can replace this in, a, in an eight week implementation that's gonna change uh, four people's habits across an entire process. Yeah. And then from there, you're able to kind of snowball and build a yeah. bigger process until eventually don't, you take Don't take a
0: bazooka problem. to kill a mosquito. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. Scott?
3: I was going to say, uh, so my takeaway is incentivize your entire team, your entire organization, your entire firm to bring ideas on improving what they're doing on a daily basis. Um, give them credit for that work. So whether you're a law firm and you're giving billable credit for innovation, whether you're a corporation and you're incentivizing people by bringing ideas to the table, you cannot think that only the top people can bring great ideas to the organization. You gotta have all levels. So the cheap and easy way to do it is lead by incentivizing your team to bring ideas and don't make it part of their daily job. One of the things I learned in some of the disruption courses that I've taken over time has been, it's really hard to disrupt yourself. And if you look at the theory behind organizations that have failed, the Kodaks, the blockbusters, they weren't actually taking feedback from their internal team. They were saying our bread and butter is print for Kodak, not digital cameras. It was rentals coming in and renting movies and forgetting the fact that I go against an entire wall and all the freaking VHS tapes weren't behind there, really annoying. They weren't ready for it. And it's because they were looking at it as, that is our bread and butter now. And law firms will change because the billable model will go away, but it is incentivizing all layers of your organization to bring ideas to the table. It's inexpensive, it's free, and it really will make a difference.
0: That's excellent. I'm gonna ask, uh, oh, go ahead. Two Isabella
1: one first. so I have a, a question for a little bit more of the the long-term strategy for future lawyers uh, so what would you say are the the basic concepts and key skills that law students or young lawyers should learn early on to be able to <laughs> I can see Scott. Scott's
0: very lawyers. excited about that question, so go ahead, well, Scott.
3: No, I just say, I, uh, so I actually met with my law school and I said they're failing their students by not teaching them concepts in legal project management and lean legal sigma. The idea behind the fact that these lawyers come out and they we can't even draft a complaint when we come out of law school, let alone manage a portfolio of matters. So for me, I think junior lawyers and the, the change in education has to be embracing technology, and actually understanding project management and understanding how to learn about what your client's problems are and what their issues are. Um, okay. And I think that if law schools do not change, we will do a disservice to the end client. Yeah, I've been – uh, so, oh, okay.
0: Very briefly, I've been told we're going to have to wrap this panel up fairly soon. Thank you. I just want to call everybody's attention, to, and everybody may be aware of ABA Rule 1, Point one, related to competence. Yes. Comment eight requires that uh, lawyers should keep abreast of changes in
1: the law, including the benefits and risk associated with relevant technology. Mm -hmm. So this is one of our um, professional obligations. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And I I would actually just to add on to the question. Thank you very much for your comment. Uh, Just to add on to the the answer to the question uh, for Isabella, uh, I would just also like to say that I think law schools, so start to look at training law students on how to code, in particular in relationship to things like smart contracts and how to do that if, then, or else kind of logical reasoning and looking at taking, say, a basic lease and turning it into a smart contract. I think that would be very beneficial, especially for future-proofing their success in the industry. John Albright. Thank you. Oh, wow. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> I know we're running out of time, so this will be a speed round to the three panellists. You're a small to medium-sized legal department.
1: You have limited dollars and resources. Where do you put them? Uh, You need to find a a really dynamic service provider, someone that's going to be able to do a lot of the heavy lifting, find a really dynamic strategy that can make your dollar stretch to the main things that are or the most important things within your legal department. So depending on the industry that you're in, that could be regulatory matters. Um, it could be immediate litigation matters. Uh, it could be e-discovery and putting your AI technologies in there, or it could be contracts. But having a really strong service provider relationship that you trust that's gonna work out where your dollars can be spent in the best way, I think is really tantamount to that.
2: Yeah, and that's, just to echo that, my, my recommendation would be uh, a process assessment like look at what the processes are, look at where the the capability of efficiency is, like where can I make this more efficient? Uh, And then the hope would be that when you're done with that process assessment, you could balance the ROI and understand I spent a little Mm -hmm. bit of money to do this, but on the back end, I can actually uh, move forward without uh, huge commitments.
3: What's the problem you're trying to solve? I mean, mean, to be honest with you, Where do the dollars go is I don't really know what your problem is to answer that because I think people try to invest and spend a lot of money a bunch of different places, but they haven't truly assessed what's the problem they're trying to solve. Is it turning around contract negotiation faster? Is it reducing e-discovery spend? Is it reducing outside council spend as a whole? Assess your problem and then invest in fixing that that issue. Um, and that will dictate where you go, whether it be process automation, technology with service providers, outsourcing, salary arbitrage, but you have to assess what the problem is you're trying to fix.
0: Excellent. Thank you very much. Yeah, we're running out of time, folks. Uh, we're going to have to get to our next panel, but I just want to thank. We didn't get to the apocalypse. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't yeah, we were gonna the talk the about once. that. I think we're gonna get to that on the next panel, okay. actually. Good. So we'll talk you'll have a chance to make some comments about that, Chip, I promise. <laughs> okay, well I want to thank our panelists Chip Chip Delaney, John Evans, Scott Miller. It's been a pleasure. And thank you all.
1: Thank you. Thank you.